You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And now that heart is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to, that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick all trouble out the door. Beat out all trouble and drunk. Beat out all trouble and drum, beat out old trouble and drum, and kick old trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum, beat me that rhythm on the drum, beat me that rhythm on the drum, and kick old trouble out the door. Kick him out the door, kick him out the door, kick him out the door, kick him out the Welcome to Radical Australia on Community Radio 3CR, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano. I've got the pleasure of having an ornament for 3CR uh, to have a conversation with today, Mr. Matthew Gleeson. Hello, Matt. Hey, Joe. It's a privilege to be here. Uh, no, 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 it's not a privilege to be here. It's a privilege for me to be able to talk to an ornament of the station, as they say. How long have you been with the radio station, Matt? Yes, yes. All right, I've been with the radio station since 1996, which is 24 years, so I'm getting there. A couple of decades under the belt, but hopefully that and more to come as well. Yeah, I'm sure there's more to come. I understand your program is pretty hot. What's your program again? Uh, Burning Vinyl on Friday afternoon. And uh, yeah, it's actually, the show has been here longer than I have. The show's been here since the station started in 1976. Um, I never met the person who started it. And apparently there was three or four hosts of it before I came along in. Well, I sat in as, an, as a participant for a couple of years and then took the show over properly on my own in about 2000. But yeah, the show is older than I am. So that is also mm-hmm. a privilege. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't kill the co-host to get the show, did you? No, I didn't. Um, the, the co-host, as, as happens, got a job. A real job <laughs> out in the real world. Why would you do that? <laughs> I wonder if he or she still happy with the fact they left. Uh, she, she, and uh, I believe so, still in a nine-to-five, even though I think that's absolute insanity, especially when you have the option of a volunteer existence at 3CR. To me, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> yeah, it is a no-brainer, I agree. Look, um, Matt, I ask you two questions during the uh, program. We've got, what, 56 minutes to answer them. So the first one is, what year were you born? In 1970, I was born. Uh, in the middle of July, July 1970. So I missed out on the 60s by six months. And also, I think in um, in, in one year's time from my birthday, Jim Morrison died. So I missed out on being reincarnated um, as Jim Morrison's new body spirit host vessel. 
<laughs> by a year. Have you got the body of Jim Morrison? Have you got his body? I think he died on um, July the 2nd, 1971, and I'm a year before that. A year before that, yeah. Look, at your age, you should be able to clock up 50 years at 3CR if you don't get a job. Starting now. Max. Well, well, age, might be able, I'm going to try and stay uh, around as long as I possibly can. Yeah, 3CR. Oh, sorry, Joe, do you want to say that again? Uh, look, Matt, at your age, you should uh, be able to clock up three C, uh, 50 years at 3CR. That's the goal. I'm going to try for it. I just turned 50 last week. 50 years yeah, old. Yeah. So I've got my half century in life. Now I've just got to get my half century at the station. Yeah, but I was thinking of I was thinking of making life difficult for you and finding a job for you. <laughs> Good luck. People have tried. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's the best way to sabotage a volunteer at 3CR is find a nine-to-five job for them and they disappear. <laughs> mm. I've already yeah. said it's not a matter of if you're earning a living. It's not as important as if you have a life. And even exactly. though I'm not earning much of a living, I have a very rich life. <laughs> Right. Look, uh, do you remember your first memory? Or have you got any idea for the first memory? I do remember the, my first Earth? memory. It's a bit of a roundabout yeah. story, but I do remember my first memory. Um, and uh-huh. I mean that literally. And uh, the reason I mean that literally is that one time, due to various exp- circumstances, I found myself in a house full of people. Um, there were people asleep on all the lounges. All the floors had people on them asleep. Uh, there were babies, so there was no TV, no stereo. It was lights out, go to bed, and lie in the dark in this overcrowded situation. And unbeknownst to everybody else there, previously I'd been playing in a band and I'd had taken acid. And I was lying there in the dark, all lights out, no sound, no auditory or visual inputs, and all of a sudden I swear I heard someone calling my name. It was it was an it was auditory and I, it was it was real. It was so real. I sat up and then I heard it again. And at that point, the penny dropped and I realized that I was hearing my mum. It was my mum talking to me. And then as soon as I had that thought, bang, there was a visual image in my head to go with it of me in a plastic baby bath in a bathroom with yellow tiles and my mum wearing a floral red dress lifting me up by the ankles and wiping my little baby bum with a face cloth. And as soon as I had that, that, that image in my head, suddenly it was like a choose-your-own-adventure game in my brain. I could look at anything around like in my room now. I can see a cup, a thermos, a phone, some ointment, um, my clothes, my records, a heater. Any one of these things could be a conduit that I could go down in my brain, and there were memories galore, vivid memories, and... And I was hearing sounds to go with those memories. And um, and I was I'd lie there in the dark for 15 minutes in this way, just exploring all these memories, things that I would never have remembered in, in reality, and including my mum wiping my bum as a baby in a bath. Of course, days later, when I was back to normal, I um, wanted to find out. I called my mum, we had a chat. I didn't tell her why, but I wanted to find out, to get to the bottom of this. And sure enough, there were yellow tiles. We lived, unbeknownst to me, we didn't live in the house I grew up in for the first six months. We were in a flat where my parents, newlyweds, new baby, 
there were yellow tiles in the bathroom. She couldn't speak to the dress, but I had a baby bath. Anyway, I'm convinced that's an accurate memory of the very first thing that I remember. And in fact, that everything that's ever happened to us in our lives, ever, is in there, stored in our brain. And on, on that one occasion, I had an insight into that. And the problem is just recall. And obviously, we can't walk around on acid all the time remembering things. That's not a life. So, um, but nonetheless, but I, I, I think that everything's in there and that we can recall everything to the moment of our birth, except that we can't. Does that make any sense? Well, it does. It's interesting. I've you know, spoken to hundreds of people over the years of Radical Australia, and I ask them the same question because I'm a lazy uh, interviewer. And uh, it's interesting. Some people don't remember anything until they're five, and other people have vivid memories of when they're less than one. It's just quite extraordinary. Well, prior to that, my earliest memory was four, and it was Bullen's Animal World with my grandmother. But then I had that experience, and then it went back a lot further. <laughs> yeah, it's quite extraordinary. Uh, Matt, uh, where were you born? Were you born in Melbourne or...? I was born in the western suburbs of Sydney. Right. And they uh, explained you know, the hospital. <laughs> it's funny, my uh, grandfather actually died in that same hospital. And um, I remember visiting him there and it was a weird experience because I'd never been there since I was born until yeah. my grandfather became ill and then I found myself back at that place. and. Yeah, yeah. No amazing yeah. flashbacks then, though. <laughs> nah. Are your parents still alive? Um, my mother is still around. My father died about uh, five or six years ago. And uh, yeah. it was funny that. We never got on when I was young. Uh, my father and I, did, we didn't see eye to eye on anything. Uh, he was a real kind of man's man. He liked cars and blokey stuff. He was useless with women. He um, had anger issues and DV issues and uh, I was a hippie and a communist and he hated everything about me, he hated the rock and roll and he was a firm disciplinarian. I would be forced to the, to the barbers every couple of weeks to have a new short back and sides. Couldn't choose what I wore or anything like that and he was always angry and we didn't get on until he got sick and uh, we even had 10 years where we didn't even speak to each other at all and um he got sick, and he became feeble, and he became a pathetic figure to me. Um, is the sorry way to describe it? I mean, for this is a strong, disciplinarian, brutal man, reduced to weakness, and my heart went out to him all of a sudden. I could see suddenly the man underneath all of this. Uh, he'd had a shit life himself. Um, he's got three brothers, and it's just the four brothers. And their dad was a violent alcoholic. And one time I was drunk with one of the uncles. And the uncle confessed to me that they all believe that their old man, my grandfather, killed my grandmother, my dad's mum. Because he was right. drunk all the time and she would often have to take the boys to sleep in the park opposite the house. But regarding her death, she died falling down the stairs. That's the official story. She fell down the stairs and died. And my uncle, when I was um, old enough to drink with him, uh, got a bit loose and told me that none of them actually believed that she fell down the stairs. And um, so my dad had no female influence in his life after that. Um, it was just him, the alcoholic father, and uh, the four brothers, who, a couple of whom were crooks. And um, suddenly I realized it's not his fault that he's the way he is. It's not his fault that he's an overbearing tyrant. He can't help the way that he is any more than I can. Yeah. 
and um, seeing him dying on his deathbed, we, we had a moment of reproachment. We both apologised to each other, and uh, that's how that ended. Well, with love. It ended with love. <laughs> My mum's still yeah. going strong. She's a saint. As you can imagine, she's a very long-suffering woman, very deeply religious woman, and even though I'm an atheist, I don't tell her that because it's important for her that I go to heaven, and um, I've got no desire to shake her of that belief slash delusion. Um, and now she can't listen to this interview either, so I won't be telling her about this. Um, but she's a <laughs> saint of a woman. <laughs> it's going to be podcast, Matt. You better watch out. How, how, how tech-savvy is she? <laughs> Hi, Mum. <laughs> I made up that stuff about the acid too, Mum. All lies. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, did you live? How long did you live in Western Sydney for? Uh, I moved out of Sydney when I was in my early twenties. I didn't want to. I, I really didn't want to. Um, I, I had a good life in Sydney. Um, I was in a, a couple of bands. I was writing for papers. I had some notoriety doing that, and um, uh, I got married. Was the thing? I got married. And my wife got a job for both of us, thanks, thanks for that, um, in Geelong. And we had to move to take up that position. Um, and that was also yeah. a publishing kind of job. Kind of, yeah. uh, there, was, there was publishing and activism involved. It was, it was, it was probably a good thing to do. But, um, yeah, yeah we, we came to down here together. And uh, as it turned out, I, I took to Victoria. She didn't. We broke up. She went back. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I moved from Geelong to Melbourne. Uh, well, let's, let's go back a bit. So, where did you go to primary school? Uh, primary school was in Wayland Primary School in the western suburbs of Sydney. Um, a new housing district area. There were lots of Vietnam vets there. I remember that. There were, there were um, Agent Orange kids, and there was a street in particular that was notorious for it. And, uh, yeah, kind of very impoverished suburban, suburban kind of you know, lower middle class life, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. What was school like for a young boy? I hated it. I hated it. Uh, well, I enjoyed the academic side of it. I was good at that. But um, like many kids, just I was bullied relentlessly. And, you know, life wasn't good at home either with violence. And now I'd come to school and there'd be more of that. And um, I was kind of like a, considered a goody two-shoes kind of kid. Um, it was well known that my family was Christian. And I was a Christian. I went to Sunday school and all of that. And uh, and I did. I didn't. I got good grades. And I was shit at sport. So um, right. that's the rest of the bullying out there. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's right. You were classic, classic bully bait, as they said. Exactly. A nerd. A nerd. <laughs> and I, I can I can see now. I can forgive them for that too. Um, in a sense, um, once I stopped being a Christian and became an atheist, um kind of like anarcho-communism became a form of that religion and gave me a different kind of way of keeping the, the same moral rules but for a different reason. And that was when I realised as well that it's not those kids' fault that they're the way they are. They're that way because of material conditions. And um, and I can't really hold it against them. But, gee, they were assholes. I hated them. <laughs> <laughs> what, were they, what were the teachers like? Uh, the teachers were mostly good, but not always. Like, we had one teacher who threw dusters around. He hit one girl in the eye and broke her glasses with the duster. That was his favourite trick. And um, uh, 
But then there was another teacher, Mr. Lewis, who intervened on me getting beaten up by about 10 kids, laying down Rodney King style, getting the ass kicked out of me. And Mr. Lewis yeah. came in and saved me from that. Um, but um, generally, they were what you would expect from, you know, from a school where there's no one who had ever achieved anything had ever gone to that school. Uh, their main oh. job was to make sure the kids stayed out of jail <laughs> and uh, right. you know, at least attended. And I, in that sense, they liked me because I attended and did reasonably well. Yeah, yeah. What, what did you like? What did you like uh, intellectually? You good at reading or books reading or was the thing math? always. And um, well, if 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 I if I attribute um, having any smarts at all to anything, reading is the big thing. And for me, um, in the the Christian household, um, we would get points for learning Bible verses. You know, or you know, you know, pat on the head and and um, um, uh, you know what I mean. Um, by the way. We would get um, some kind of justification. I kind of think of the word. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I would, everyone would learn a Bible verse, but I would go the extra yard and learn the whole chapter, and or, uh, or the whole book if it was short enough. And um, yeah, and uh, yeah. I got so much praise for that that I kept it that even with um academic pursuit. And yeah. the other thing, and if I had kids, which I don't thankfully, but if I did, or if anyone had well had to give what an advice from a childless person, <laughs> as if yeah. a parent would. It would be debating. Debating yeah. is the, the the thing that um kind of made me who I am in so many ways because we had good debating teachers and they would make sure that, you know, we would have to argue for things that we didn't believe in. So I would be the kid arguing for Reaganomics and the other kid who was yeah. conservative would have to argue for um, you know, um, you know, communism or something. We always had to argue against type and I was always forced to sit down and look at arguments in as many different ways as possible and come up with all the different perspectives in order to win the argument. And and that's that's something that stays with you forever. Every time I read the paper, I do that, you know. Yeah. Um, so and music, and of course music is good for your brain as well, uh, and most parents now accept that, you know. Luckily, I had a piano in my room and I could play it whenever I wanted. What? You had a piano in your room? How did that come about? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was my grandmother's piano, and uh, she became too enfeebled to play it. So my mum got my mum could play piano great. She was the church organist, mm -hmm. and um, I had lessons for a couple of years when I was about eight. But then I stopped because I was a kid and I didn't want to do it. But the piano was in my room, so I could go in there any time I wanted. And I had enough rudimentary knowledge from a couple of years' lessons to figure out what I wanted to. Um, and as they say, good enough for rock and roll. Mm. And uh, I would come home from school. If I'd had a bad day with bullying or if Dad was yelling in the lounge room or whatever, I'd go to my room, close the door. Sometimes I would just hit a note and listen to it ring out and listen to the overtones ring out for a long time. It gave me a sense of peace and quiet. Other times I would play something and usually improvise it. Um, I'm not a sight reader, but I can improvise. And, right. um, yeah, I, that, 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 that was my... um. Well, that was my everything, really. That was what I did instead of sport, instead of the things that other kids do. Was um, right. obsess about music. How old were you when you started questioning your uh, Christian beliefs or your parents' Christian beliefs? I was still living at home when I first started to question them, uh, and because I was academically inclined, I would always be asking difficult questions, and I'd find little things, you know, and I'd and I'd, and I'd hassle the preachers with it. Like, for example. The book of Chronicles, or the two books of Chronicles, cover the same events as the two books of Kings. But Kings was written a couple of hundred years before Chronicles, even though they talk about the same events. Now, in Kings, 
it says that Solomon had something like 114 horses when he did some bullshit or another. In Chronicles, yeah. it says he only had a handful of horses. And so I'd go to the Sunday school teacher and go, hey, what's going on here? How many horses did Solomon have when this went on? And, um, and of course, there are other bigger questions as well. You know, like, for example, in Mark and in uh, Luke, uh, it says pretty much the same thing. Anyone who wants to enter the kingdom of heaven must receive it as a child. But elsewhere, uh, Paul, the great apostle, says, I, um, when I was a child, I thought as a child, and I reasoned as a child, but now I put away childish things. So what is it? I would be like a child, or would be put away childish things? And I'd be um, asking questions like that. But the real thing that got me was the sexism involved in it, because Mum really believed that Dad was the head of the family. That's biblically ordained. The father is the head of the family. And I'm thinking, that arsehole, that arsehole who beats us all around, and who is a total bastard to all of us, including you, who throws plates around and chucks dinners on the floor and bashes us all. He's the head of the house, and you'd like to... I'm always saying to Mum, you know, you got to stand up yourself, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But every belief, and, you know, and I was a chicken shit, nothing ever happened. But I'm thinking to myself, that is a stupid rule, because my mum is the nice one and the smart one, and she should be in control of the family if anyone is. And, in fact, yeah. the fact that he's in charge of it, because he is just useless. <laughs> And how old were you when you were thinking that way? Sixteen, fifteen, sixteen. Ah, well, yeah. So, so up to then, you just basically trundled off to church and Sunday school and all yeah, that. Yeah, and then it became more, more serious and more academic. And um, for example, in the book of Malachi, God says, "I am the Lord your God; I do not change." But I think you can demonstrate that God has changed all through history, and not only that, He has changed according to human history. He starts off being a family God in the age of the nomads. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they, they, he was their God. Different to all the other gods in that he was invisible and not an idol. Good, clever move. Very hard to disprove the existence of an invisible God. So he survives the period of the nomads. And the next thing you know, they're all in captivity in Egypt. He becomes the God of the slaves. I'm going to free these slaves. Then when he frees the slaves, he becomes an imperialist God. I'm going to go out into all these lands and you have them. These are yours. Kill these Palestinians, kill these Palestinians. This is your land. Then they go back into captivity in Babylon, and he's the god of the slaves again. Then Jesus comes along. Oh, he's the prince of peace. And um, I think you can demonstrate quite clearly that that verse in Malachi is false. The Lord our God does change, and he changes according to our human history. And I, all this is going through my head, and I'm starting to think, this is, this is not adding up. This faith is not adding up. But it was many years before I could say deliberately blaspheme or say, God, I hate you, or Jesus, you're not real. Because I thought I'd be yeah. punished, you know. Um, it yeah. took quite a while to build up those guts. But I got there eventually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any brothers and sisters? You got any brothers and sisters? Say again? You got any brothers and sisters? Oh, yes. I've got a sister. And uh, right. she's, she's a darling as well. She was always, like, she was actually braver and more rebellious than me when we were kids. Right. And she was the only one who would actually stand up to Dad when he was having a nana. But um, yeah. funnily enough, she's the one who followed the family faith. And uh, she uh, married um, a preacher. And they live in Sydney's western suburbs. She's got three kids. And they are gloriously square and um, Christian. But when I say Christian, they're not conservative in, the, in that kind of way. It's a weird kind of political mix. Like, for example, um, we were never brought up to be racist in any way because God loves everybody. 
And um, in a sense, my parents' Christianity is quite left-wing. I mean, it's justice-based, social justice. They're down with all of that. They don't like um, injustice. They they love all races and all of that. They're just a bit stick, and they don't really um, look at issues in the same way that someone who's got nothing better to do does. And um, yeah. so my sister's in that situation at the moment, and uh, she's very ill. Again, she's very ill. Um, she's got... She's got clots in her lungs, um, Joe. She's got clots in her legs. Um, oh, that's life-threatening at any moment. And then they found out that she's got very, very low white blood cell count, um, like ridiculously low, like how you're still walking low. And um, yeah. then they found that she's got a lump in her heart, and they tried to dissolve it with chemicals. They don't know what it is. Chemicals didn't dissolve it in the bloodstream. She went in for open-heart surgery a couple of weeks ago, and they... Um, uh, found a bit of it had come off, and they cut that out, blah, blah, blah. And so for the last five years, my sister's been not sure if she's going to live or die. And uh, so, again, I don't want to shake their face. You know, I, I let my mom and my sister think that everything is nice. We're going to all go to heaven together. I don't want them to not have that belief, because I think they need it. My mom needs it after 75 years of shit life, and my sister needs it because she needs her faith at this moment. More than anything, she needs her faith. Because that's a... Otherwise, that's a real shit way to be living life. I really feel for the both of them and love them so much, but they won't be listening to this. (laughs) Well, that's right. The certainties of youth uh, disappear as you get older. You know, you make, you understand, as you said, you understand. It's not so important that they know what, you know, what my philosophical views are, you know, and that's all they are to me. It's much easier for everyone if they just think that I'm a, um, possibly not the world's best, but Christian nonetheless, uh, believer in Jesus, and we're all going to go to heaven where we're going to meet up with all of our dead relatives and everything's going to be great. And they both need that so much. And uh, when I was a kid, I I did public speeches for eight years. I I debated um, at Macquarie Uni. They had a uh, a United Church chapel, the seminary, sorry, where their students studied to be priests. And uh, I was a prominent atheist, and we would have debates um, in front of, you know, a couple of hundred people, they would get their best person, and I would go up and we'd debate apologetics and the Bible and all this kind of stuff that we was talking about before. And um, and I held my own, but my parents found out about that and it crushed them. And um, mm. and you know I I I, I had, I had a, a, a not a very exemplary life, and I fell into the rock and roll lifestyle in a very heavy way. They found out about that too, and um, so if if you know for the last ten years, you know. They think that I'm kind of gripping. Somehow or another, I've got Jesus in my heart. Somehow or another, they're clinging to that, and I've got no. I don't want to disabuse them of that notion. So yeah, it's a date, a date haunt. Right. So, so where did you go to high school? Uh, did year seven in the western suburbs of Sydney as well, and uh, thankfully we got out of there after that because the school that I went to, as I said, the bullying was intense, and John Travers went to this school. John Travers, the Anita Crobby racist. Mm. He was the, he was in my school, and that's the type of mentality that we're dealing with in that area. Uh, sadly, well, not I, mean, I don't want to generalise the whole area, but the bullies from that area are of that calibre. <laughs> and um, in year um, eight, thankfully, we moved to the country to Moss Vale, and that was a totally different school environment. Um, the, the tough kids in Wayland and Mount Druitt was a Westie kid, that's what we called them. And right. um, the, they were working class thugs. But the tough kids in Wasfail were very much of the rural class. They were hicks. 
<laughs> and generally, yeah. it's well, easier to get on with and reason with than the um, one day certainly going to prison thugs that I had before that. <laughs> yeah, well, they'd be tired from farm work, basically. <laughs> yeah, farm yeah. boys. Yeah, farm boys. Yeah. I mean, they could, they they bullied good. Like, I got beaten up there as well. But um, I never thought it was going to go over the edge, you know. I never thought that I might actually right. end up dead. <laughs> <laughs> we'll laugh about it now. Uh, yeah. yeah totally. So, did you graduate? Yeah, I graduated from Mossville High School. I did really well there. Um, but if, if you came top of the class, they would give you um book vouchers. And I got right. some great books still to this day. Some of the good ones got nicked. I'm sorry. <laughs> like what did you get? What did you get? What book well, did you get? One that I'm thinking of that got nicked was this big, like, a a three sized hardback book with a thick, inch long spine. The detailed art of Dura, Albrecht's Dura. And uh, it was zooming gross on the corners of his paintings. And there's all little treats and minutiae in all these paintings. It's incredible. And, uh, yeah, one time or another, living in a rock and roll house, um, someone, you know, availed themselves of that, along with lots of other good stuff. That's the problem with junkies. They take the best stuff. Junkies have got the best taste. They only take the right. good stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's what All my books out the door. <laughs> Bands yeah. like Ministry, Nirvana, out the door. <laughs> right. So uh, the that go to university, did it? Yeah, that got me to Macquarie University, and uh, I was really glad to get there because I wanted to run away from home. I had for a long time. But I kept thinking, I like, just hang on. You know, I can do this by the book, you know, with parental approval and get into university. And uh, and so I, st- I stayed at a college up there, Don Wayne College, which is on campus for a couple of years until I got the um, uh, maturity and the balls, I guess, uh, to, to to use a sexist phrase, to get my own place. But yeah, the college life was good because you're surrounded by other academic-minded people. We'd have dinner at tables and I'd be sitting with 20 people and there'd be the guy doing his physics master and the person doing their psychology PhD and the conversations around that table were extraordinarily... Um, uh, informative, you know, and I'm just a young kid there. I was always the young kid around, but I'm soaking all this up. I loved it, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. um, and, um, yeah, and, and lots of larrikinism as well. Like that, that's that uni where I discovered where well, I could finally put the nail in the religious coffin, hammer that thing closed for all time. And, uh, and rather than be a kind of, well, I'm, I'm not an immoral person, and I never believe that you have to be religious to be moral, but I'm looking on a seeker, you know? <laughs> and um, yeah. and that's when I, you know, through reading and meeting people, discovered um, uh, well, left-wing issues, I guess. Uh, I, but foolishly, I hung around with the Spartans for a few, the Spartacist League. For you you, had, you hung around with the Spartans? Well, just for a few months. I'm just thinking, I want to find something. The Spartans were awful. They were terrible. And I got kicked out of a meeting one time, and they said, um, we need to support the Ayatollah Khomeini in his glorious stance against American imperialism in the Middle East. And I stood up and said, the Ayatollah Khomeini is anti-communist, he's anti-women, he's anti-gay, and we can't support this guy. And they all, Splitter, Splitter, who sent you? And all that kind of crap. And I left with my tail between my legs, never to return. And I'm not going to support the Ayatollah bloody Khomeini. And they're likewise yeah. finding out about the, the crimes of the Bolsheviks, you know, and Kronstadt. Yeah. And thinking, well, that, there's Christ, a big red cross through that as well. No, 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 no. Uh, and so, um, yeah, finding, um, you know, 
uh, how you would say a libertarian libertarian workers for a self managed society, and the logic yeah. around those Kropotkinesque ideas that really yeah. um, the, that really um, filled up the holes that I was feeling in my life and answered the right. questions that I had as well. Right. And uh, okay. I haven't really um, I haven't you know, just a bit of fine tuning around the edges, you know, and uh, a bit of borrowing mm-hmm. from here and there. But basically, I've never strayed from that. And uh, that, that happened so, at did university. You actually, did you actually study anything at university? Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't want to leave. I, I, had, I had an arts major. <laughs> and at Macquarie, you can, you can, it's quite disciplinary, so you can do what you want. And I would, my thing was I would get to one course short of graduating, say, in English Lit. I'm one course yeah. short of graduating, and I, I changed my major. Now I'm studying modern history. Until I'm one course short, then I switch it again. Anyway, I accidentally ended up graduating. I had a dip ed as well, and um, I already had majors, well, almost majors, one course short in history, philosophy, and English lit, and I accidentally tipped myself over the edge because I was studying women's studies, and one of the women's studies courses was cross-disciplinary with modern history, and so they said, okay, son, you have to graduate. (laughs) (laughs) Too much time of your life here. You've yeah, accidentally yeah. got enough points to graduate because you didn't think it through properly, and now you have to graduate. Graduate. <laughs> so that's how that happened. <laughs> but yeah, I was there for a long time, I was, you know, half a decade, and then I stayed half on campus after that. I got a job editing the student magazine. So I was editing uh, magazine. What was it called? Uh, sorry, Joe, what was that? What was the student magazine called? It was called Arena. And then oh, Arena. Yes, in passing show. Um, one, I can put my hand up. Um, I wrote the original shoplifting article, which uh, right. appeared in Arena. But before it appeared in Arena, and from Arena onto every student paper in the country, uh, I'd written it for our own little periodical, which we did under Gestetner. We had a Gestetner in our share house, and yeah, we wrote it off, and we had a, a magazine called Destroyer 267. And yeah. uh, I, I put this... I saw a very funny article in Destroyer 267 about shoplifting, which had shoplifting tips and how to get away with it, interspersed yeah. with hard-hitting um, polemics about um, the need to shoplift. And it was basically comedy, comedy, you know, like, comrades, the time has come to take the yeah. means of um, production <laughs> to our own hands, or just take that Mars bar. And, you know, and I had pictures, like one has a picture of a, a guy with a punk rock mohawk, and the other with a picture of a guy in a suit. And I said, shoplift with a friend, arrow pointing to the um, person in the mohawk, friend, and, um, and the guy in the suit does the actual shoplifting. And I thought it was hilarious. It was very, very funny. And uh, one day, the arena paper was short of a page, so we threw it in there, and scandal erupted everywhere. And all the papers around the country republished my article. But they took the jokes out, Joe. They took out all of my jokes. <laughs> and they made it just hard-hitting polemics. It was just, you know, smash the state, smash the shops, bring everything to its knees. And they took out all my comedy, which really, I thought, made the article. That was, that was it, you know. They took out the joke. And then all the Alan Jones actually went berserk. So, um, yeah, that was fun. And um, then after that, I um, was working on Parking Show. And uh, it's funny all these circles add up. When I was um, working for Parking Show, my boss was Sally McManus. Currently, the ATTU secretary. Great, great woman. Great friend. And a great boss, too. She loves to get away with murder. 
So, um, yeah, it's funny. All these, all these little circles all come together in various ways. It's like I was saying at the start of the program. You can go down any tunnel in your brain and there's a, there's a wealth of images and sounds and memories in any tunnel you just go down. And, uh, I mean, I could talk for, to about Sally for the next 20 minutes or about the um, magazine or about getting drunk in the bar. Or, 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 or every, every, every memory is like a labyrinth of extra memories. It's, uh, it's totally exponential. I wish we could open that with our minds to, you know, conscious will, uh-huh. but I don't think we ever will. <laughs> Yeah. You said you said you moved into some bands. When did all this happen? Into some band? Yeah, you did some bands. You were a part, part of a number of bands. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Um, nothing nothing that anyone would have heard of, but, um, right. <laughs> but a lot of fun nonetheless, you know. And, um, yeah. and, it, and it got me out, and uh, I saw a bit of the world that way as well. Uh, nothing like a complete holiday. But, um, and I miss it, to tell you the truth. It's, I have one big regret in my life. If there's one hole in me that's kind of where I can still hear the the echo of um, longing, <laughs> it's um, right. it's it music and creativity. You know, I really should be doing more. I'm 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 a I'm a I'm underachieving in classic style, and uh, I should really pull my finger out and get back to that. Because that, that that was the best moments of my life and the times that I felt the proudest of myself, and uh, the times that my self-esteem was you know the healthiest levels was when you know I was. Uh, you know, happy, happily creating and getting respect right. for it as well and recognition for it. Uh, yeah. I, I used to say the meaning of life, well, deep questions that people ask you, what's the meaning of life? I'd say the meaning of life is quite simple. It's having a sense of purpose and accomplishment. But you have to have both purpose and accomplishment. You can't just have one or the other. Like, if you have a purpose, say you want to succeed in something, but you haven't accomplished it, that's 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 not going to work. Or if you have accomplishment and you're really successful in something, but you have no purpose, that's also not going to work. You need both purpose and accomplishment. Mm-hmm. I used to say that for years. Recently, yeah, I was saying something right. different though. <laughs> now yeah, people ask me what's the meaning of life. I say survival. The animals get it. I, the animals yeah. don't question the meaning of life. But if you try and drown one of them, they'll they'll struggle, struggle and fight mm-hmm. for their life. And uh, I think it's actually, I was lost in my head for years. It's much more simple. The meaning of life is survival. And all the animals already understand that. But us humans, we overthink things. And, um, but yeah, yeah, survival, that's it. Purpose yeah, <laughs> and accomplishment yeah, think, is a good thing, though, to have on the side. <laughs> well, when you said, when you said uh, uh, respect and uh, accomplishment, I mean... That's the mistake a lot of activists make. You know, they think initially they can change the world, and they take on huge tasks they can never accomplish. And I always say to people, especially young people, getting into the activist game, I say, look, work on something you can accomplish, and then build on that, because nothing succeeds like success. Especially, you know, in our game oh. where uh, there's no, no, you know, nobody gives you any uh, credit at the end of the day. But uh, work on what you can succeed, and if you do that. You'll do well. You'll you'll survive. You'll stay. You'll. It, it's true, and it'll also it'll yeah. snowball. It'll um yeah yeah um, yeah. um, um I mean this sounds like a a, a catalyst um, motto or something. I don't mean it that way, but success breeds success in that sense. You know, yeah. um you know they're saying fake it till you make it. When yeah, I get, yeah, yeah. When I get really depressed when I'm like rock bottom depressed. One of the best ways of coming out of it is just faking it, pretending that you're not depressed. And, uh, like, if you're depressed and you go outside, people will see you're depressed and that will affect their mood and it will affect 
reflect back. That if mm-hmm. if you go out and you're happy, then people will see that and that will lift their mood and that will reflect back. So if I get really depressed, I, I, I fake it. I pretend to be happy even though I'm not. And people mm-hmm. react to me in a happy way. And happiness comes back at you, which in turn mm-hmm. makes the fake happiness real happiness. And mm-hmm. yeah, and if you work on something that is achievable with a definable goal that you can actually meet, that will yeah. feed back in on itself for for the next thing you want to do. That's right. Well, that's the theory, I mean, anyway. Yeah. 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 I like occasionally. I like to surprise people. I ask you how you are, and I tell them how I'm actually feeling. And you see, yeah. 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 oh, people don't know how to deal with that, do they? Yeah, they don't know how to deal with when you tell them the truth. They just, oh, look. Uh, you know, my partner's died and not feeling very well. And, you know, and they, they look at you and they think, Yeah, oh. right, right, okay, well, uh, have a nice day. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> move on, move on. <laughs> so, uh, so this, the trip, notoriety, was this related to this uh, shoplifting article or did you anything else you, you're proud of? Well, there was the shoplifting article, there was the public speaking against Christianity. And, um, and uh, I guess... Yeah, I guess that's basically it. I went. I found that it's really easier to get media, and I realised this the first time. It was due to racism. Uh, I was at Dumoulin College when Tiananmen Square massacre occurred, and the wow. college had Chinese students there, and they were gutted, like like beyond consolation. And I, I tried though, but they were beyond consolation. And I went with them to attend some rally demonstrations slash slash outside the Chinese consulate. I went with, to, to support them, but once we got there, all the media kept coming to me. I wanted to talk to me. And I thought, is this because I'm a white male? Like, I'm not Chinese. Talk to one of these Chinese students. And, um, but some of the media came to me. And, uh, and I thought, you know, thinking about situationism and how, how can I, I don't want a personality cult. I don't want to encourage that. What would a situationist do? And I thought, um, well, uh, in my case, being a white male, I was, I was trying to turn up the comedy. And I remember one, there was one big demonstration against um, student um, fees, I think, from memory. And uh, there was like thousands of students marching down the street. But the night previous on television, on an episode of Beverly Hills 90210, they had a demonstration on that program, on that episode. But they were protesting because one of the characters, Tori Spelling's character, had been caught drunk and they weren't going to let her graduate. So the students on the TV show protested and their marching gang banners let Donna graduate. So me and a couple of mates show up to this actual demonstration against student fees and we're carrying signs saying, let Donna graduate, which I think is hilarious. But then the the media all come up and want to talk to us about let Donna graduate and not about what the actual demonstration is about. Yeah. And, um... I don't know, it's, it, it, it's something I've, 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 I've tried to come up with a workable theory with my whole life. A, a very good friend of mine and a mentor as well, um, uh, uh, with Anika's point of view, um, we, we showed away at a union conference, and to cut a long story short, everyone, all the factions hated one another, and my friend was going to get elected to a high position in a union as a, as a compromise candidate, even though he stated that his intentions were anarchism, and... Uh, mm. Uh, participatory democracy, not representative democracy. And a deal was had behind his back to get him actually elected to a position. And we thought, this would be the real test for our friend. Like, um, is it all empty talk, kind of? And my uh, friend got up and gave what was supposed to be an acceptance speech, but was instead putting everyone 
squarely back on their seats and uh, finishing up with a vote for a woman and not for me. And um, yeah. I thought well, that, that was that, I thought that was done with a plum. But there's various things that you can do to kind of deflect away um, from the attention that comes to you. I think it's important that you do, especially people like ourselves, Joe. We're in media, and yeah. it's very easy for us to become figureheads or, or I don't know, or rallying points. Or people go, "I'm not going unless that person's going," or whatever. You know, yeah. and that's not how I battle. this trying to figure out how, how to um, how to how to nip personality cults in the bud and um. But it's so easy to do. You know this, I know this from music. People are really easy to control. I make a great cult leader. It's very, very easy to take advantage <laughs> of people. They haven't got time to think things through as much as a professional thinker, you know? And it's very yeah. easy to bamboozle them with these kudos. Look, Matt, I, I, I need your help. I need your help. I've always wanted to be a, a religious leader, but I've got a problem. <laughs> I can't find a hook. I can't find a hook. You know, yeah. eternal life, one with the Godhead, 36 virgins, it's all been taken. Have you got anything you can offer me? We tried once. We tried to go have a kind of like form of Satanism, you know, do what thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law. And yeah. uh, crossed with a bit of um, uh, Atticus' invisible hand, sure we'll be right, it'll all work out in the mix kind of thing. But yeah. no, no, I haven't found anything. <laughs> no, but no hope for me. So I'm going to die. Yeah, I'm going to religious leader. I have a friend who's um, you know, an old school communist, uh, old school unreformed communist. And uh, when asked the big questions, she will often reply, "The meaning of life is kids." And she hasn't had any kids, but the meaning of life right. is, you know, the future of the planet, what comes next, right. uh-huh. and doing whatever you can, however small, even if it's not participating, if that's going to make the planet. Not worse. <laughs> well, well I, I had the pleasure in oh, 1987 of interviewing Harvey Buttonshaw, who's long dead. Uh, he was an anarchist who lived at Labour's Hill in uh, regional Victoria, and he'd fought in the Spanish Civil War with the Pum. He'd uh, fought with the Vichy French, because he was wow. a French Foreign Legion. It just went on and on. And he and lots of people around him got shot and died, and I said yeah. to I said to Harvey, I said, what's, your, what's the secret of life? What's the meaning of life? And he said, plain, dumb luck. He said, I was standing there with two yeah. other blokes. One gets shot to the left, one gets shot in the right, and I'm still standing there. He said, it's plain luck. That's all I can say. And he'd, he'd been a man who'd been torpedoed twice and survived, and you know, he cheated death many times. You know, That's what he it said, makes plain sense. luck. It, that's how it is for non-human things as well. That's how it's been for the planet. And evolution, the universe, just dumb chance. Yeah. Dumb but chance. Why wouldn't it be the same chance. for us as humans? Yeah. I respect that point of view, yeah. Yeah, and I thought, well, makes sense. Now, you left Geelong when your marriage broke up. What, did you come down to Melbourne, did you? Yeah, I came back, to, I came, well, back. I came to Melbourne from Geelong. It was a very happy marriage, but there was drugs in it and stuff, and it was probably doomed from the start. We're still friends. Yeah. I would even say I still love her, but, you know, it just wasn't going to be. And um, right. so she went back to continue living that way. Unfortunately, I moved to Melbourne to try and make a better life, and right. I was successful for a little while. Um, old habits are hard to break, but um, but yeah, I ended up in Melbourne, and um, and if, if people haven't done this in their life, I, I I really recommend it. When I moved to Melbourne, I didn't know anyone here. Um, mm-hmm. Subsequent to me moving here, some of, a lot of my Sydney friends have moved down here as well. And I will be here, and I'll say hi, 
and these are some friends of mine. But when I got here, I knew no one here. There was no one to introduce me to anyone, whatever. So I just had to, it was like a giant cold call on a whole city. I had to make friends from scratch. And I got very lucky. One of the first friends I made here, like literally one of the first um, handful of friends, um, was the co-worker um, who started me off at 3CR and Burning Vinyl, who we talked about earlier, Jody. Jody was one of the first people who I met in Melbourne. And um, and she did the burning vinyl show on 3CR, and I sat in with her on her for a couple of years, and got to know her, got to know 3CR people. So I I got plain dumb luck right there. Plain dumb luck yeah. was one of the first people I met. Um, opened up yeah. that entire world for me here at 3CR and um and uh, right. and associated groups to do with that. You know that, that was that was that was very lucky for me. Yeah. And um, yeah, but if you've never done it, if you've never moved somewhere and you don't know a soul, maybe just once in life it's worth giving it a go. You know, it's quite something. It's different to moving to somewhere where you already have a friend base. And um, yeah, anyway, I, I like it here in Melbourne. I'll stay in Melbourne. I'm, I'm not going anywhere. I'm, I'm going to stay here. This is where I like it. Are you part of the inner, inner city push, or do you live outside of the inner city? I'm living in the housing commission flats, and again, playing oh. dumb luck. They could have put me anywhere. Yeah. I'm within walking distance to 3CR. What, so it's part of the I'm, I'm putting an order for a cup of tea. Yes. Yeah, yeah I'm getting a cup of tea brought to me, Joe. <laughs> yeah, aren't you lucky? Aren't you lucky? Oh, oh, I'm, really, I'm very, very lucky. <laughs> Where are you sitting? Um, I'm at home in my place, and um, yeah. that just suits me. Like, the older I've got, the less... Mobility, I've got. I've got Sarko Mario Tooth Syndrome. Have you heard? You, you right. as a doctor, you, you know that syndrome? Yeah, I'm trying to call what it Yeah, I have doctors. Have you got anyone in your practice who has CMT? And uh, they usually have, but I've never met anyone else with it except my dad. It's just yeah. me and him, as far as we know. We don't even know where it came from. Like, no one before the family is owning up to it except my dad. My dad was misdiagnosed as polio. He grew up his whole right. life thinking he had polio. Right. And um, it wasn't until I was born, and I was walking funny from the moment I could, and they got me tested, CMT. And so where did it come from? Dad, he gets a CMT diagnosis in his late 20s, and he thought he had polio. Yeah. And yeah. before that, as anyone's guess, and I'm going to take it to the yeah. grave with me. So in our family, it's just a little yeah. experiment of two generations of it. Explain to people. nowhere, and I'm taking it to the grave. Yeah, explain to people how it affects you. Uh, it's a motor neuron disease. It, it manifests itself in funny walking, in my case. And people often think that I've got funny legs. It's a leg disease. But it's actually of the brain. It's a neural condition. and It causes the deterioration of the peripheral nervous system. And by peripheral, obviously, I mean that the peripheries of the body, hands, feet, the nerves around there gradually die off. And in my case, as that's happened, it's led to severe atrophying of the foot, deformity of the bone, uh, to the point now where I mean I can't walk anymore. I'm in a wheelchair. I mean I can walk if I have my um what I call uh, my spastic boots. Uh, I think I can say right. that because I'm a spastic gay. Yeah. But uh, well, I've got my spastic boots, I can stand up and walk. But uh, other than that, I can't walk. I'm going to be in a wheelchair, and it gets worse yeah. as you get older. So um, yeah. I'll, I'll, I've got that to look forward to, and um, and it's um it's a uh, genetic. Condition. So, so hence my dad had it, and then I got it from him. 
but no one knows where Dad got it from. Um, it's a big mystery. But um, yeah, that's it basically. The peripheral nervous yeah. system dies off, and there's all kinds of side yeah. effects that go along with that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It could, could have been worse. Could have been worse. Like uh, there are people with a condition have been a lot worse way than I am. So. And uh, people often say to me, well, what if you'd never been born with that? If you'd been, wouldn't you have a better life? And I thought, well, no, I probably wouldn't have been bullied as much. And I probably wouldn't have been as interested in music. And that parallel universe, you know, imagine a, a really good-looking, athletic version of me. My ego goes through the ceiling. I'd have to be chopped yeah. down like a little puppy. Um, <laughs> but thankfully... Uh, my ego has been kept in check by that my whole life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, I'm going to ask you a question about wheelchairs because that's that's what I've been involved with. The, mm. Most of my patients are in wheelchairs, and they've got really funny stories. But uh, tell us how difficult it is to get round Melbourne in a wheelchair. Um, it varies on whereabouts in Melbourne you want to go. Like, you can't get them on trams for a start, or buses. So on public transport, we're talking trains or taxis. Um, so it depends where you want to go. For where I am, near 3CR, I'd rarely have to take public transport anywhere. I've got a doctor's appointment once every five weeks where I have to get a train. But um, that's about it. So I'm lucky in that regard. Um where I live is very important. I'm right. If I was before this, I lived in Coburg, and that would have been that would have been hellish to get around in a wheelchair. Uh, thankfully, my wheelchair came after the Coburg house. Cause, um, but um, I mean, to me, it's a new thing. I've been in a wheelchair for only a few years, and at this point in my life, it's a godsend because. The walking is not an option. Like, oh, I'm just down the Auckland Parliament Station, but I couldn't walk there. Yeah. But in the wheelchair, it's it's comfortable. You know, I've got a comfy seat. I call it, I call it a comfy seat that moves by itself. So I've got a comfy seat that moves by itself. And at this point, uh, I, I'm I'm really appreciative of that. I'm enjoying it. I, I feel a little, I've got a, a bit of an imposter syndrome, perhaps. Sometimes when I'm in the wheelchair and um, I, I park it out the front of a place and I get my walking stick out and take a few steps in, I can see people looking at me going, he doesn't need a wheelchair, he can walk, look at him, he's got a cane. And uh, sometimes I feel like a bit of an imposter. But as I'm constantly reminded, you know, like you take one look at my feet and you think, they're, they're not yeah. load-bearing. <laughs> they're not yeah, load-bearing. Exactly. Exactly. But um, for me, I haven't had any problems, but I'm lucky where I am. Good. Have you been able to access the NDIS? I have, yeah. I've, 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 I was one of the first on that. And uh, they gave me a half-price taxi car, yeah. which um, I don't really use that much because, like I say, I'm, I'm near where I need to be. I'm near the hospital, I'm near my doctor, and I'm near 3CR, and I'm also near the music pubs. So um, yeah. I, I got lucky. Um, but I do have a half-price taxi car. That's great. I hope I never lose that. That would be a horrible thing to lose, but a great thing to find. If I do lose it, yeah. I hope that the person who finds it is worthy. Uh, no, the great thing. Look, I, I was involved in a 40-year struggle to get the NDIS up and going. Um, it was a very long struggle, but it's made, I made did, a huge I did, I did struggle to get the NDIS, but I did struggle to get the disability support pension. The mm. disability support pension was a real struggle. And this is going back to um, 1999. Um, 
the CES finally got me, Joe. They got me, and I had to have a job. I had to take a job. There's no way out of it. And uh, with with the work I'd done in magazines, they found me a job working at a computer doing what they call graphic design. What it really was was a production line of real estate billboards, all done to templates, all with corporate logos and colors. So zero creativity. And all you had was an inbox and an outbox, and you got a pat on the head if you got through the most jobs in a day. So I got this stupid CES job, and I hated it. And I'm starting to think, I don't want to do this job. And I'm, people are saying, disability is getting worse. The doctors are saying to me, maybe you want to think about the pension or the sickness. I'm putting it off because I'm in denial. I don't want to think that I'm that I'm crippled at this point. You know, like I'm getting away with it. I, I don't, I, you know. People, people might think I'm drunk before they think that I'm crippled, you know? And I'm getting away with it. But um, one day, the job was horrible. I'll cut a long story short. The job was horrible. The guy was a um, perpetrator. There was, the women in that office were being molested, and I needed to get out of there. And um, I went to a doctor, and I said, I need, you know, I'm going to apply to the pension, because, I, you know, I think, I think I'm time. It's time. And uh, I got rejected on the pension for my Sarko Mario tooth because they said I had to be certain percentage invalided by it. And I can't remember what the number was. It say you have to be 92% invalided and you're only 87 or something like that. These are made-up numbers. It was something like that. Yeah. And I went, well, yeah. bugger. You know, well, um, I said, I'm really depressed. In my work, this is happening and that. And, you know, I, I, I stopped to work every day. I just want to chill myself. I'm sitting in the toilet pretending I'm taking a shit. I'm actually contemplating my own mortality. And they right. said, oh, 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 alarm bells. I got into the pension for... That That was what tipped me over the edge. The, the right. shock of my head wasn't enough, they said. But right. when, um, <laughs> when, I, when I started talking about existential problems, that tipped me over the edge. I got onto the to the pension. But before that, I had to go to a doctor in the city. To be, my doctor says, put this guy on the pension. They say, well, we'll get our doctor to have a look at him. So I have to go and have a look at their doctor has a look at me. I mean, everybody else is a refugee, I think. Like, everybody else there is not speaking English, and they all look like they're from um, near or far Asia. And um, I'm thinking, this is these are refugees, and they've got to see a doctor for some reason. And me, the only other person in the room. And so um, I get into the um, doctor's surgery, and he's there. We've got a really pretty kind of nurse as well. And under normal circumstances, I might try and flirt with that nurse. But he says, take off all your clothes except your undies and walk up and down for us. So I take off all my clothes except my undies. And now my deformed feet all twisted over looking like, you know, like Bacchanalian nightmare. And I've got to hobble up and down in front of this guy with my knees clicking and my ankles go rolling over on my ankles. And, uh, and hanging onto the walls or I'm going to fall over kind of thing. And... um. He goes, okay, you can put your clothes back on. I thought, that was humiliating. I felt utterly humiliated. And like I say, the, his assistant, I would have flirted with her if I'd seen her at a pub. But in my underpants with my deformed feet hobbling around, I felt, I felt tiny. I felt tiny and horrible. That was an awful experience. And that was just so that they could say, yeah, this guy is crippled enough. He can have the pension. And, um, yeah. That was hard. The NDIS, they came to me. Oh, we think you should he's in, he's, sign this, sign that. You're going to go on the NDIS yeah. now. I went, okay, okay. <laughs> Whatever. Yes, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's really complicated, There's so many different departments that you have to deal with. Yeah. And they don't know what each yeah. other is doing. I, I've got, yeah. I live in Carlton. I've got the Brotherhood of St. Lawrence managing me. They're near Essendon Airport. 
I've got Medical Care, who are doing in-house support. They're located uh, somewhere out in the western suburbs. And um, now I find out I've got to have another group to pay Medical Care or something. They're called Instacare. They're on the far eastern side. Now, I'm living in Carlton. There's an NDIS office on Brunswick Street. Why can't I go to Brunswick Street? I've got to catch a cab there since an airport every time I want to talk to them in person. Uh, it's insane, Joe. You know? The system is a good idea, but they need to really, you know, rough those things off it, hopefully quickly. <laughs> now, 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 but just in case, just in case nobody knows about burning vinyl, what time's it on what day is it on? It's on a Friday afternoon, um, 2 to 4 p.m. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the moment... I'm playing Australian live music. Um, normally on the show, I would play Australian music, new releases, talk about what bands are around at a community level, you know. But I'm not talking about bands here on the radio or see on TV. Bands that play in this community. And because there are no bands playing in this community at the moment, um, I'm, I'm having fun playing um, uh, bands from before my time, like live concerts by bands, Australian bands from the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Um, uh, they don't get any respect in overseas. Uh, musicians from that era are now kind of like minor folk hero celebrities. They have a different status to here in in Australia. If you're a musician in the sixties or seventies, don't want to know what you're doing now. What's your actual job? What's your real job? Uh, they yeah. didn't get any well. They, all their record deals were rip offs, and yeah. um, and they get in a hard deal, hard time. So I figure I'll play their records. <laughs> yeah. Oh, why not? Why not? You've got to keep it keep it live. Now, Matt, just in case we have anybody under sixty listening to the program, uh, yeah. you got any advice for the our younger listeners? Um, I do, but I'm hesitant to give it because, like, what if I'm wrong? <laughs> um, well, I could take it or leave it. It's just advice. You're not telling them what to do. It's advice. If I could go back in time to myself, I would say, I'm. Um, Specialise in something. Pick something that you're good at and then give it your best shot. And don't keep your finger in ten different pies waiting to see which one of these might produce, you know, dinner. Just pick something and go for it. And But I don't know if that's good advice. Maybe you should try everything, try everything to see how much sticks. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> I had thought of some advice I would give a young person like an unequivocally standby. Yes. Don't smoke. <laughs> Now that I'm done, I tell you, don't smoke. <laughs> don't smoke. <laughs> right. Well, that's good advice. It is good advice. I mean, there's nothing going. I would feel comfortable saying that to days. any kid, anyone's kid. That's, I would yeah. feel comfortable saying that. Don't smoke. <laughs> Look, uh, Matt, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Uh, yeah, thanks, Joe. I've enjoyed it. I'm only asleep this time of day, so. Yeah, you're asleep this time of day. Normally I am, yeah.
I'll cut you the first slice of cake. <laughs> yeah, I'll be about 97 or something. <laughs> All of it. Good work. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Sorry, mate. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.